Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Thank you, Ben, and good morning, men. It's good to be with you today. I appreciate this congregation so very much for multiple reasons, really, but let me mention one that I sort of alluded to a little bit ago, is that our newest son-in-law, our youngest son-in-law, is from the Jeffersonville, Indiana campus of Southeast. And we will always be grateful for this church because uh, he's just been a, such a blessing to our lives. Uh, he is a biracial young man, and he's six foot five, okay? With his afro, he's about 6'10". And I told him once, if he ever mistreated my daughter, I'd bite his kneecaps off. You know what I'm saying? So he's that much taller than me. But we love Matthew. He directs our diversity department at our school, and uh, just such a blessing uh, in that way. But that, uh, multiple reasons I could mention this morning about the uh, you know, historical significance of this congregation. But let me kind of jump right to things today with regard to our study. If you will. At our house, we're kind of passion play junkies. You know what I'm saying? If there's a passion play that presents the last five days of Jesus' life in a local high school or a church or something, we're there. I read in Christianity Today magazine that since the 4th century A.D., uh, the church has reenacted the last five days of Jesus' life. Why? What is it about this story that's so fascinating and gripping? So, so we go to passion plays. We just show up. Uh, we've been to the big known one out in South Dakota. Uh, that's been there since 1937. The guy that brought that play to South Dakota uh, in the Rapid City area uh, uh, was from Germany, and he played the role of Jesus in the play into his 80s. Can you imagine? And uh, we've been down to the one in Branson area. You got to go to Branson before you die. I think that's in the Bible someplace. But anyway, uh, you know, Branson, Eureka Springs, it was done by some Catholic friends, and uh, there's a lot of scripture. Just, it's just so saturated with scripture, that passion play. And it's wonderful. Uh, actually, uh, at the invitation, we did not deserve this, of Bob and Judy Russell. We came here. Some of you, raise your hand if you remember the Easter pageant that you all used to put on. Two hours and five minutes, musical. It was awesome. And we were at their invitation, able to come and see that one. And uh, Bob said, did I see you wiping your eyes? And I said, no, I must have had something in my eye. You know? It was very moving, very moving. But 20 years ago, and then in just a matter of months, we will go back to the most famous passion play of all. And that's the one in Germany at the little village of Oberammergau. Do you know the story? In 1633, there was a, uh, a plague sweeping Europe. And the people of the village of uh, Oberammergau said to God, if you will stay the plague, if you will keep it from bothering us, we will present the last five days of Jesus' life every 10 years until he comes again. And they have done it since 1633. Every 10 years, about 1,000 people of the 5,000 people that live in the village are part of this play, and the local Lutheran church choir that comes out and sings on stage every so often in the play would rival anything I saw in Broadway in New York City. It's just It takes six and a half hours to watch. They give you an English translation from the German, and by the time it's over, you're kind of exhausted. What is it about this story that so draws people and draws you and draws me? I don't know that all this answers at all, but I think part of it, guys, is when you read the story of the cross, you just kind of realize that somehow you're, you're, you're 
uniquely present and somehow strangely responsible for what happened there. That makes sense? So you've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, and it is, I was named after this guy, actually, John Mark. And, uh, you know, he was known as stump-fingered. Stump His hands, I guess, were small. Look at this. Never could, you know, palm a basketball with that thing. So anyway, I have a little affinity to the Gospel of Mark, and you've been picking your way through this very fast-paced Gospel. Jesus was immediately over here teaching, immediately over here preaching, immediately over here healing. He is a man on the move. He's a Messiah on the move. And finally come to the crucifixion narrative. And that's what we're to study today. But I think as you look at this with me in Mark 15, if you have your Bibles there or your devices, we're going to start in verse 21, kind of walk down through this. You'll see that it really is bigger than life and death, this passage of Scripture. That while we can look at the narrative, we can read through, and I, I can tell you what some of these Greek words mean and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, fellas, we kind of got to get underneath the story because in the midst of the story, there are some what we might call eternal realities, bigger-than-life issues going on here. And I'd like to kind of take my preacher's knife this morning, if I can, and just kind of slice this rather lengthy passage up into four parts. And let me give you a label for each of those parts. Here's the first label. It comes from verses 21 down to verse 27, and I would say it this way. Maybe you can help me by saying it after me. I'll help you. I'll coach you. But here's the way I would label it. He refused to be helped so we could be helped. Now, you, you say the phrase after me. He refused to be helped. So we could be helped. Look at it in the text, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, I'll pause as we walk down through this first part to just remind you that as you look at these verses... Two things come to mind. One is the subject of all the sentences. Sorry, it's the grammarian in me. The subject of all the sentences is they, 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 they did this to Jesus. They did this to Jesus. I thought he was the sovereign Lord of the universe. How could it look like mankind was in charge when God was in charge of what was going on? So first of all, that's an irony. And, and, and that would be the second thing. These verses are very ironic to me. That Jesus could have called 10,000 angels to help him, but he didn't. He, he, he just refused help from other people so that you could be helped and I could be helped. The irony in the first verse we just read is a guy that helped carry his cross didn't have the same color skin he did. Jesus wasn't this white albino boy you see here, that's for sure. He was a Jew, had olive colored skin, but Cyrene is in Africa. Are you surprised that this Jesus, who is wide in his embrace for all people, would have a man from Cyrene in Africa help carry his cross? Does this surprise anybody in the room? He refused help. He accepted the help from a man in his wide embrace from Africa. Look at the next verse, verse 22. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, or also pronounced sometimes Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Do you find that ironic? Do you find that a little bit odd? That they would kill Jesus, that they would murder Jesus on a hill called Skull Hill? I could take you to Jerusalem. We're leading a group uh, this uh, June back to Israel again and coming back through Germany to see the Passion Play at Oberammergau. But I could show you two different places, the traditional site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Is that the site where they've built this church building over the supposed site of Jesus' crucifixion and, and resurrection? Or is it what's called Gordon's Calvary that's just a little ways different because there's a hill there that looks like it's got eye sockets 
and a nose. It looks like a skull. Why would they crucify Jesus on a hill called Skull Hill? Well, guys, do you remember way back in Genesis when God said to the woman Eve, I will put enmity between your seed and you know, his seed, meaning the serpent, and he will trip your heel, but you will crush his head. That deals with a skull. Maybe you have some fulfillment of prophecy right here. The next verse is also ironic. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. See what I mean? He refused help. So we could be helped. That's a narcotic. Wine mixed with myrrh in Jesus' day. That was a narcotic. To sort of take an edge off, to, to dull your senses. But Jesus went to the cross wanting to be fully cognizant of what was going on up to the very moment where he breathed his last. I find it ironic. Uh, the next verse in verse 24, and they crucified him. Just imagine how much hangs on that verse. And they crucified him. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Ben was kind enough to mention the influence that some of us had on his life. Let me tell you about a man who uh, had a big influence on my life. And I've heard Bob Russell say the very same thing. And that's a man by the name of Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock was a teacher of preachers and New Testament studies, was also a preacher himself. He was, in his last major full-time job, he was at Candler School of Theology, which is a United Methodist seminary as part of Emory University in Atlanta. And he said one day in one of his preaching classes, he said, we came into class and people were kind of getting their things together as class was to begin. And he said, we had a young man, an African-American man, who was to preach that day in class. And he said, he came into the classroom, he just started in. We didn't know he'd already started his sermon. But all of a sudden, we realized we were in the middle of a sermon. He said, he kind of came in, and he said to the class, do you like my coat? I got, I got this coat at work. Do, do, you, do you like it? And the class kind of looked around like, well, I guess. <laughs> you know. He said, I, I got it at work. We, 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 I got it, and I went home, and uh, the kids were out in the yard playing. They said, "Whoa, Dad, nice coat. Wow, where'd you get the coat? Oh, I got it at work today. Looks good on you, Dad. That's great. You like it? Yeah, Dad. He goes inside. There's his wife at the kitchen. She says, whoa, 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 nice coat. Where'd you get the coat? Oh, I got it at work today. She said, you know we don't have the money for you to buy that coat. He said, who said I bought the coat, woman? She said, did you steal that coat? She said, he said I didn't steal this coat. He said, I was on crucifixion duty today. And the guy in the middle had this nice coat. We shot dice for it, and I won it. All of a sudden you realize, whoa, we're in a sermon here. And the preacher went on to tell the class, when did God save the world? He said, I'll tell you when. When a Roman soldier one day went home with a new coat. Ironic, isn't it? Ironic. You keep reading here. You see more of it in verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. If you take that from a Jewish perspective, that's 9 o'clock in the morning. Quite a way to start your day with crucifying somebody, something the Romans picked up from the Persians and perfected it, I might add. And the inscription of the charge in verse 26 uh, against him read this way, the king of the Jews. Isn't it interesting? His crime was who he was. His crime was his identity. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. You know, Jesus associated at his death with the same kind of people he associated in his life. He just hung around ragamuffins. He just hung around really needy people. Why would we be surprised that he would do the same thing when he died? 
You see what I mean? There's kind of beneath the narrative sort of a truth that's going on. And the truth is that uh, he refused help. They, 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 they did these things to him so that you and I could be helped. Can I give you the second eternal reality here in the passage? Look at the next verse, verse 29. We can start reading there. Here's how I'd label it. Maybe you can help me again. He refused to save himself so we could be saved. Let me chop that up for you. He refused to save himself so we could be saved. Now look at the text, verse 29. And those who passed by, there would have been a lot of them at the foot of the cross, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Here's a phrase. Save yourself. You know, the phrase, save yourself, and Jesus Christ do not belong in the same sentence. That's the one thing he refused to do. He wouldn't save himself so that we could be saved. He said, we read, save yourself and come down from the cross. Uh, so the, also, this is verse 31, the chief priest with the scribes, mocked him to one another. You know, I don't know why it took me so long to realize. Chief priests, that'd be Sadducees. The scribes, that would be the Pharisees. Religious people murdered Jesus. Religious people murdered Jesus. I'm a religious person, aren't you? It gives us pause, does it not? Wow, it says they mocked him as well. He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Well, they did at 9 o'clock in the morning. But you can see a lot of love in six hours. And by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, one of those thieves had changed his view. Do you remember? And he's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. But the one thing that Jesus refused to do was save himself. And he did that so that you and I could be saved. What I find interesting, guys, about the, that section there is where that eternal truth came from. It came out of the mouths of mockers. Oh, our God is so powerful that out of uh, the strangest places he can sometimes bring the gospel. If you would go with me to Jerusalem, I could take you to Caiaphas' house. They've actually found his name on an inscription there. So we're pretty sure in the southwest part of the old city is where the Sanhedrin met in Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas would have been the high priest at this time. And, and, and I, I just think it's kind of interesting to read about Caiaphas, especially in the Gospel of John. When he's had it about up to here with Jesus, you know, uh, he says this. This is stupid. That's my translation. But this is dumb. Why would the whole nation have to die in place of one man? Why don't we just kill one man for the nation? Uh-oh, uh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Caiaphas said more than he knew. And John, writing later, says that Caiaphas, being high priest that year, prophesied for Jesus would die for the nation, but not only for the nation, but to gather into one all the scattered people of God. Have you ever said more than you knew? The gospel can sometimes come out of the strangest places. In our earlier days before going to the Bible college to teach, we were in a seven-year ministry in central Illinois in the Springfield, Illinois area. And uh, during that time, I held a little revival meeting at a, at a church down in Robinson, Illinois. It's a little county seat town, about 8,000 people is all. If you like Heath candy bars, they were probably made there. If you're into marathon oil, it's, it's refined there. But Robinson, Illinois. You know when you're at a church and something tragic happens, your lives kind of become intermingled? That's kind of what happened. I was there for kind of a 12-day meeting. I think I preached 16 times in 12 days leading up to Easter. 
And we were having a little hard time getting this revival meeting off the ground. In fact, some people didn't want to come out at night because they were scared. The reason? There was a guy who had, in the local situation there, escaped from the police from jail for the fifth time. People begin to wonder, what do we have, a bunch of Barney Fifes for cops? What's going on here? Anyway, it was trouble. He had set a fire in the school. Some people think he'd even murdered somebody. And an Indiana Highway patrolman ran him down on foot in some woods. He had gotten stolen two cars, come down here to Kentucky, and was going back through Indiana. He was headed back to Robinson, Illinois. They said, what are you doing that for? So I can get caught again. You want to get caught again? Yeah. Why do you want to get caught again? So I can escape again. It was a game with this guy. And we were kind of having a hard time getting this revival going. And I started praying, God, get this guy out of the way. I mean, he's a menace. He's a problem. We're, having, we're not able to get this thing rolling. Well, during that same time frame, went over to the chairman of the elders' home for a noon meal. And his, his son, Todd Andrews, you know, blue-eyed, blonde-headed boy, had already started asking his daddy about baptism. He played with our son, our oldest boy, Casey. Uh, and then he went off to afternoon kindergarten. His dad always took him. And then he would ride the school bus home. Well, the preacher and I, after that dinner, we had gone out and we were making some visits in the community to invite people to the services of the church to get them to think about Christ and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, some tires squealed around the corner and they pulled up behind us and they said, you need to go to the hospital. There's been an accident with a five-year-old boy. The only one I could think about was Todd Andrews. He had just seen him at noon before he went to kindergarten. And we pulled into the hospital to watch the hearse pulling out. In that hearse was the body of a five-year-old boy named Todd Andrews. He'd made a little basket, I guess, at school. And when he got off the bus, windy day in southern Illinois, it blew out of his hand. And it blew in front of the bus. And he went to grab that, and the lady bus driver didn't see him. And she rolled over and killed him. Needless to say, church was a little different that night. Man, I mean, I hadn't seen my wife for several hours that afternoon. Finally, she came in. We didn't preach that night. We just kind of prayed as a church there. Everybody was just toe taken by this chairman of the elder's son that had been killed. And can I just tell you, men, I'm not very proud to admit this. I was mad at God. I was. (laughs) And I pulled my wife into a Sunday school classroom before the evening service. Could have been our kid. Preaches in Indianapolis now. Same age as Kyle. I just, Lord, I don't understand this. Why did an innocent little boy like Todd have to die and a guilty guy that's going around setting fires in school escapes from the police for the fifth time, gets off scot-free? I don't understand this, God. Why do the innocent have to die in the place of the guilt? And it hit me what I just said. That's the gospel. Sometimes the gospel comes out of the strangest places. Well, there's a third eternal reality here. If we just keep reading our text beginning in verse 33, and this is how I would label it. He refused to forsake us, so he was forsaken by God. Could you say that after me? He refused to forsake us, so he was forsaken by God. Well, sort of, kind of he was. I have to qualify this a little bit. But look at the text, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. That's not normal. You know that. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Do you notice the distance? How did he usually refer to his father? 
Abba, Abba, my dear father. This sounds like it's this. God, God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from the Bible. And it's the only statement of the cross of the seven statements that Mark, and for that matter, Matthew record. Luke has the other three. John has the other three. There are seven all in total. This is the only one. In fact, it's the last thing Jesus will say in this gospel. He feels forsaken. The word forsaken means to be left alone, to be left desolate. And verse, verse, verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Can you see why they'd think that? If his tongue is sticking to the roof of his mouth. And he said, Eli, Eli, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's, it's like it comes out Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. See, I'm not really suggesting that God the Father forsake his, forsook his son, but preachers from another generation would illustrate this this way. It was as if God turned his back on his own son. I don't think that's the real case because Psalm 22 from which this passage comes ends with great victory. It may seem like a... Have you ever wrestled with this, guys? How is it that God sometimes seems so far away when he in reality is always near. It's a paradox, isn't it? He seems so far away, but in reality he's always near. I think that's the case here. It looks as if the father has turned his back on his own son, but the only reason that would seem to be the case is so he wouldn't turn his back on you. So he wouldn't turn his back on me. Forsaken. That, that oldest son of mine, I remember years ago when we were living in Illinois and we had a Sunday afternoon softball game. So I was going to go to the softball game, playing the game, and uh, uh, Casey was going to go with me. And Miss Carla, my wife, didn't want me to take him because she said I get kind of consumed when it comes to sports. And uh, she said, you won't watch him. I said, I'll watch him, I promise. So I said, it won't take him long to beat us by the 10-run rule. I'll be home soon. Anyway... So here was the ball field, and the playground equipment was kind of over center field. And when the game was over, it didn't take them very long to beat us by the 10-run rule. And so when the game was over, I thought, well, it's stupid for me to just cl walk clear over there to pick up Casey and, and then come back to the car. I'll just get in the car, and I'll kind of back and go around the parking lot and, around the, and then I'll get him over there. Well, of course, he didn't know what was in my mind. And uh, when he heard that little 1984 citation, may it rest in peace, start up, it's like a little ostrich head poked up. You know, as I'm pulling out around the parking, I could see across center field, his head just popped up. He recognized that motor. And he thought, as I moved out, what was I going to do? Leave you. And so as I'm starting out, I saw him literally start running across the playground. He leaped this fence in center field. Okay? It wasn't that tall a fence, but he leaped it. And as he ran to me, he said, Dad, Dad, don't leave me, Dad. Dad. And as a dad in that moment, guys, I got to tell you, I died just a little bit. To think that he thought that I would forsake him. See, if, you'd be glad this morning that I'm not God. Because if that had been my son, I think I'd have said to you guys, you can just go to... But God didn't, did he? He refused to forsake us. What's the Bible say? He will never leave you or forsake you so that we 
wouldn't be forsaken. So he forsook his own son. I got one more thing to say. It's in verse 37. And I would label it this way. He actually refused to live so we could believe, believe and live forever. Can you say that after me? He refused to live so we could believe and live forever. Yeah, that's what's here. That's what's here. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. By the way, five strong men could maybe tear that from bottom to top. But from top to bottom? To lay bare the love of God in the temple? That sounds like a miracle to me. And when the centurion, a Roman soldier, who stood facing him, saw in the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Do you know that's kind of a key confession? Mark places in the mouth of a Roman soldier the key confession. When you started your study in the Gospel of Mark, here's how the book begins. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now in kind of a classic moment in the Gospel of Mark, a Roman centurion, this is written to Roman Christians, says, truly this man was the Son of God. Here's the deal. At the end of the day, Jesus refused to live. He really died. God died. God in the flesh died. That's what Scripture affirms. And the fact of the matter is, that's so important of a truth that John in his Gospel spends quite a little time talking about that. He said, I saw it. I believe it. You can believe it. You can trust my eyewitness testimony. I was there. I saw him jab that spear and he sighed and blood and water. Did he die? Yeah, he died. You can't have Easter if you don't have Good Friday. You just can't. Somebody's got to die for a resurrection. He refused to live, cried out, breathed his last, so we could believe and live forever. There was kind of a famous orator-type preacher years ago in our heritage in the Christian church. His name was Bob Shannon. Maybe you've heard him preach, some of you older ones. Anyway, he preached at Largo, Florida for several years. And there at the church, whenever somebody came into the church through baptism or membership transfer or whatever, they would make a call on, on that person. And they would give them some stuff from the church, and they would give him a, a Bible. And so one day, Bob Shannon was going to make a call on a new member at the church, and he went to the supply where the Bibles were in the church building, and he, pulled, he looked on the shelf, and there were no Bibles. And so then he saw a box of Bibles sitting there, and he thought, okay, well, somebody forgot to reload the shelf. So he took a razor blade, and he cut open the box to be able to take, and when he did, he cut his finger. And he took out his handkerchief, and he began to hold it around his thumb, and he thought, oh, Bob, you foolish guy, you're going to get blood all over these Bibles. You can't do that. And then he thought to himself, but a bloodless Bible is no Bible at all. For somewhere I read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, guys, there's something bigger than just the narrative here. There seems like there's some primal realities, some eternal realities that lie beneath the story. One night I couldn't sleep. That's very unusual for me. Normally when my head hits the pillow, I'm gone. But I was kind of just tossing and turning. My wife said, you beached whale, stop. And I said, well, I said, I'm trying to think about how you illustrate the love of God on the cross. And she said, you don't illustrate it. You just tell the story. The power of the story is in the story. Go to sleep. Well, how are you going to sleep after that? <laughs> the power of the story is in the story. The power of the story. The power of the story is in the story. Why has the story of the crucifixion been so powerful through the years? I grew up, I was in junior high, high schoolish, 
during the Vietnam War, I didn't know anybody personally of those, what, 58,000 or so that died in the Vietnam War. But when we were in Washington, D.C. and went by the memorial, I cried like a baby. Some of my buddies in high school had older brothers and uncles that had died. And I read something kind of interesting. I don't know if you'd recognize the names Willard, William Craig, Daryl Lausch, Robert Bedker. Those are three names of the 14 names that are on the wall that didn't die. Computer error. The wall says, you're dead. But there was a mistake. They weren't dead. They were very much alive. And I got to thinking about that. I thought, you know, that's kind of our story. The wall out there in life says, you're supposed to be dead. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You sin, you die. That's our story. But because somebody else died, our names might be on the wall. But we get to believe and live forever. We get to do what the centurion did. Truly, this man was the son of God. You say that, you believe it in your heart of hearts, you'll live forever. You'll live forever. I don't know why my oldest boy has gotten into this message this morning so much. But when the kids were little, we would read our scriptures at the evening meal together. I had 7 o'clock classes at the college, so I was off and we didn't eat breakfast together. But we would have our evening meal together. And, and so we read the scriptures that our church was studying. And the, we would also read the mother classics like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and things like that. But we read them the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And uh, our, our oldest boy, is, uh, he was reading college material at the fifth grade level. He's, he's always had a good vocabulary. So we're reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first of those seven little children's books that C.S. Lewis did that adults can almost understand. You with me? You may know the story that, 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 that a white witch has made it always winter and never Christmas. But the word on the street is that there's this lion coming, and he's going to make the flowers bloom, and he's going to make the grass grow and the trees bud, and He's going to take away all the snow. And, and this one, he'd make things right again, this lion would. So he's the Christ figure. But, but Edmund, the little creep, sells his soul to the white witch for Turkish delight. The end result is, how do you get Edmund back? So the great lion makes a deal with the white witch. And he walks up this hill and they shave off his mane and they mistreat him and he goes on a big stone table and the white witch takes a knife and jabs it into the life of that lion. And the chapter for the night ends. And at Mark Scott's house, we only read one chapter per night. And our oldest boy just burst into tears. <laughs> he lost it. And I looked over for mama for a little emotional support. She's lost it. And I said, Casey, 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 come here, come here. And so he came just crying because he knew who Aslan represented. He knew who the white witch represented. I said, son, 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 now listen, listen. You know who the white witch is. Yeah. And, and you know who the lion represents. Yeah. Now listen, listen. Son, do you remember what happened on the third day? And he wiped his tears and he got a big smile on his face, just a young kid. He said, oh, yeah, Dad, I remember now. I remember now. Guys, it was a Thursday night. I know it was a Thursday night. But somehow, all of a sudden, it seemed like Easter. 
don't know if you know this or not, in a free church tradition like Southeast, but maybe some of you come from backgrounds where this happens to be the week. Tuesday was Fat Tuesday, which I always thought was prejudiced because I can be fat seven days a week. I don't need just Tuesday to... <laughs> you all know what I mean about New Orleans? Fat Tuesday, you with me? That means yesterday, guys, was Ash Wednesday. Now, that's probably not the tradition where you are now. It's not the tradition I come from where we wear ashes in the form of cross to kind of get us ready for Easter. And you know, we can kind of criticize our other religious friends, and we can say, well, you know, that's kind of tradition. There's no Bible about that that backs that. Well, that's true. But maybe we better ask this question. So what are you doing to get ready to celebrate Easter? Before we criticize our other religious friends, maybe we need to say, is the cross of Jesus Christ real in my life? I mean, are these eternal realities being seen that he refused help so that we could be helped? He refused to save himself so we could be saved. He, he, he refused to forsake us, so he ended up being forsaken by his father of sorts. He refused to live so we could believe and live forever. This is the week where we start sort of getting ready for Easter. Here's what I said earlier. I want to circle back to it before you get in your groups and discuss. It's this, very simply. The cross is not just a historical event, though it is that. But it is an event that is bigger than history. For the calling in this passage is not to just understand that an innocent guy got a raw deal. The calling of this passage is to say, how are you going to live this out? How will you live out the cruciform life where you put the needs of others ahead of your own? That might not be a bad pre-Easter decision to make this morning here at this gathering. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for these guys. I know that they, many of them work in environments that are a lot less uh, secure as far as being believer than I work in. And I pray you'd help us all this Easter season to not just appreciate the cross, but live out the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.